beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if there's one thing that we tend to seek for and promote more than anything else, it is probably self-reliance. It makes us feel good about ourselves when we can do things on our own and, and succeed at them. In a sense, it's really what growing up is all about, isn't it? It's about learning to become as, as, as independent and as self-reliant as possible. That's why the Bible's teaching that we are justified by faith alone, the teaching that we considered last week, is so hard for us to swallow by nature. Because it leaves no room for our works. It leaves no room for self-reliance. Being justified by faith alone means that we cannot contribute to our justification, our righteousness before God at all. Nothing we do can make us righteous before God. But maybe you're thinking, you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, we know this, don't we? We're Reformed. We're not Roman Catholic. And, and didn't we already hear a sermon on this last week? Oh, we did, yes. But congregation, even if today, this afternoon, is a little bit repetitive, and I'll, I'll try not to be, I'll try not to say exactly the same things in exactly the same way as I did last week. But even if it is repetitive, it's important that we realize the Bible itself repeats this doctrine over and over again. And that tells us two things. It tells us, first of all, that justification by faith alone is extremely important. It's extremely important for us to get it. And the second thing it tells us is that we're so slow to get it. We can confess it with our mouth, but at the same time not really understand it in our hearts. In fact, even worse, by nature we're, we're, we're so resistant to it. Even when we have, even when we've embraced this doctrine, even when we have cast our confidence entirely on Christ, we can so easily fall back into thinking and living, sometimes without even realizing it. Living, thinking and living as if our standing before God, our righteousness, is somehow based on our works. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, used by God, not great in himself, but used greatly by God, he said this, I'm more afraid of my own heart than the Pope and all his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope, self. In congregation, he's not the only one. Think about it. If we always thought and lived out of this reality, the reality that we are justified by faith alone, what reason would we have to be proud? None. And yet, pride, boasting in ourselves, is a struggle, isn't it? Even for the child of God. 
We can so easily put ourselves above each other. We can so easily snub and look down on, on, and, and despise and condemn others, even other churches or other Christians. Or, or we go the other way. We, we wallow in despair because we think about our own imperfections, our, 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 our remaining sins, our own weakness of faith, and we think that somehow that, that disqualifies us from all hope of salvation. There are so many ways we can so easily fall into thinking and living as if salvation depends on something in us. And that's why we need to hear and understand the teaching of God's Word revealed to us in passages like the ones that we read, Luke 18 and 19, and summarized for us in Lord's Day 24. The Pope in our hearts, Pope self needs to hear and understand the teaching that our works don't count for our justification. That's our theme with God's help. Our works don't count for our justification, for our being declared righteous before God. You say, why not? Well, for one, for one, God demands a righteousness our works can't achieve. That comes out very strikingly, doesn't it, in Luke 18, verses, verses 9 through 14. Verse 9 tells us that there were certain people listening to Jesus who were trusting in themselves because they thought that they were, they were righteous and, and they were despising others. And, and so the Lord, we're told, he tells this parable about a Pharisee and a publican. They both went up into the temple to pray, he says, and, and he describes how the Pharisees stood and prayed. He prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of, of all that I possess. And a publican, on the other hand, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then the Lord Jesus makes his point. He says in verse 14, I tell you, this man, that is the publican, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased or humbled, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. That's the lesson. But, but what does this parable congregation show us about the Pharisees' righteousness then? It tells us it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. The problem is the Pharisee didn't realize that. He didn't understand that. He didn't recognize it. That, that was his problem. But you see, it can be just as much as our problem too. We can forget, we can fail to realize that God demands a righteousness our works can't achieve. You see, he demands an inward, not just an outward righteousness. The Pharisee, he had an outward righteousness. He wasn't an extortioner. That means he wasn't a swindler. He wasn't a thief. He wasn't unjust. That means he wasn't dishonest. He wasn't a cheater. He wasn't an adulterer. He wasn't unfaithful to his wife. He didn't have an affair with another woman. And, and he wasn't like the publican. He wasn't like that tax collector with him in the temple. He, he didn't rip people off of their money. No, 
He was serious. He was sincere about keeping God's law, about worshiping and serving God. He fasted twice a week. He gave tithes of all he possessed. He was the picture of godliness. That's what the Pharisees were in those days. We we have the Bible now in the New Testament and we can see how Jesus exposed them and, and, and so we see their hypocrisy. But in those days, most people did not see that. Most people thought of the Pharisees as the picture, the epitome of godliness. The the publicans, the tax collectors, they they were the complete opposite. They were the picture of sin and of ungodliness. But the Pharisees were the pictures of godliness. They prayed, they read, and they studied the scriptures. They they, they dressed properly. They went to church and, and, and they listened well when they were at church. They seemed to do everything right. Everything was as as perfect as it could be on the outside. And that's exactly the problem. External righteousness isn't enough. And we know that. I know we know that in our heads. We've grown up, many of us have grown up hearing that. It's been drilled into us. And yet are we not tempted to think and live as if it is? Well, we say we're sinners. We confess that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We say all the right things, but aren't we still so prone to, quote-unquote, thank God that we're not like others, that we're not like those homeless people in Lethbridge, that we're not like those other Christians who believe this or, or do that, That we're not like that person who has an addiction. Or that person whose whose marriage is falling apart. Or that person whose children have walked away from the church. They've walked away from the Lord. That we're not like the girl who got an abortion. Or that man who has a drinking problem. That we're not like that transgender person in the store. Are we not tempted to quietly or not so quietly trust in the way we lead such respectable lives in comparison to others? In the way we work hard? Or in the amount of time we spend in in Bible reading and, and prayer? Or in our thorough knowledge of Bible doctrines? Or in the amount of money we give to the church? Aren't we tempted to think and live as if external righteousness is enough? God demands more. He demands an inward, not just an outward righteousness. The Lord Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in Matthew 15, verse 8. He, applying the words of Isaiah 29, verse 13 to them, he said to the Pharisees, this people, speaking of them, this people draws nigh unto me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. God doesn't just demand outward obedience. He demands inward obedience. That's what part of the Sermon on the Mount is about, isn't it? He doesn't just forbid murder. He forbids, he forbids sinful anger in our hearts against each other. Anger without a cause. He doesn't just forbid adultery, sex outside of marriage. He forbids lusting after others in our heart. What is he saying? He 
he's saying we need more than an outwardly righteous behavior congregation. We need an inwardly righteous heart. And none of us has that by nature. Our hearts, as Jeremiah 17 verse 9 declares, our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's true of all of us left to ourselves. And our works can not change that. You can do all kinds of works. You can go to Bible studies. You can go to church and listen well twice each Lord's Day. You can dress properly instead of immodestly. You can try and be the perfect kid. You can do all the right things and even do extra like the Pharisees did so that you look good outwardly in the eyes of others and perhaps even feel righteous yourself. You feel right with God. You feel good personally, but it won't change your heart. You'll just be like what Jesus compared the Pharisees to in his day in Matthew 26 or 23. Dishes, he he compared them to. Dishes that are clean on the outside, but filthy on the inside. Painted tubes. Painted tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. And that's not good enough for the infinitely righteous, holy God. He demands an inward, not just an outward righteousness. But not only that, he, he also demands a comprehensive righteousness. You cannot be justified just by obeying most of the law. You must obey all of it. That was the problem with the Pharisees. Oh, they did some things. The Pharisees did. This Pharisee in in the parable here in Luke 18, he tithed. Well, that was a good thing. The law commanded that. Jesus didn't condemn the Pharisees for tithing. He condemned them because, as he says in Matthew 23, verse 23, you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin Missing a page here for a minute. Pardon me. You pay, you pay those tithes, but the weightier matters of the law you do not do. Excuse me. These ought you have done. You have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you have done and not leave the other undone. Do you see the point, congregation? God demands a comprehensive righteousness. It's not enough to keep part or even most of the law. You know, that's what the rich young ruler we read about, he, 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 he claimed to have done in Luke 18. But Jesus told him it wasn't enough. You see, Jesus knew that God requires total obedience. He knew it was true that what Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 10, cursed is everyone, quoting from the Old Testament, cursed is everyone that continues not in how many things? Some things? Most things? No. All things. All things which are written in the book of the law to do them. God requires obedience to his whole law. James 2, 10 and 11 says that whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, 
Yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Congregation, God demands a comprehensive righteousness and he demands an inward, not just an outward righteousness. In the words of the Catechism, the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. God demands a righteousness our works can't achieve. The Catechism goes on to say even our best works in this life are all imperfect, defiled with sin. That's true before conversion. Before you're converted, all the good works you do are like filthy rags in the sight of God. Because you don't do them out of true faith in God. You don't do them out of love for God. You don't do them for God's glory. And that's what God requires. In our fallen, unconverted state, we don't do any true good in a spiritual sense. In the eyes of God, the reality is that left to ourselves, we have not obeyed and cannot obey even a single one of the commandments of God. That's not my opinion. It's what God's Word says. You read it last week. There is none that does good. No, not one. It is only after conversion through faith in Jesus Christ, through union with Him by His Spirit, that we can truly begin to do good. But even then, beloved, even after conversion, our best works in themselves are still imperfect and defiled with sin. They are truly good works, yes, works produced by God himself who is working in us both to will and to do. The good works of believers are works that God delights in and, 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 and then, therefore we should not despise them. We should be thankful for them, but we should recognize at the same time that they are mixed. Why? Because we are mixed. We know God We know Christ, yes, by grace, but only in part. We still have remaining sin. Like Paul says in Romans 7, when we are Christians, we yet find a law that when we would do good, evil is present with us. Our sinful flesh flesh lusts against the Spirit so that we cannot do the things that we would as we would. That's why John Owen In his work on the mortification of sin, he he writes this, Who can say, who can say that he had ever anything to do with God or for God, that indwelling sin had not a hand in the corrupting of what he did? Even the best work we do is imperfect and defiled with sin. Think of just a worship service. Thomas Watson writes in, his book, The Doctrine of Repentance. How often have the services of God's worship been frozen with formality and soured with pride? There have been more of the peacock's plumes than the mourning of the dove. Congregation, God demands a righteousness our works cannot achieve. That's why they cannot be the whole or even part of our righteousness before God. Our works don't count for our justification. The only way to be righteous before God is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. 
Yes, but our proud hearts object. If our works don't count for our justification, why does the Bible talk about rewarding good works? To use the words of question 63, what? Do not our good works merit or earn anything which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? That brings us to our second point. The the answer to that question is that God gives a reward our works don't deserve. It's true that the Bible talks about God rewarding good works. We read it in Luke 18. After Christ's encounter with the rich young ruler, he talks about how hard it is for the rich man, for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to, to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But, but then he goes on to say that the things that are impossible with men are, are possible with God. We may be so thankful for that. But then Peter, he, he pipes up in, in verse 28. He pipes up and uh, he says, Lo, or, or behold, we have left all and followed thee. How does Jesus answer? He doesn't say, Peter, shame on you. Don't you know that you're, you're, you're saved by faith alone? He doesn't say that. No, he, he says, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that has left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake who shall not receive manifold or much more in this present time and in the world to come life everlasting. And what is Jesus saying here? He, he's saying God rewards those who forsake everything for him. And that's a good word. If God calls us to, to forsake things for him, for the kingdom of heaven's sake. So God rewards good works. Though he rewards those who do good, good works. That's what Christ is saying. And he says that more than once. The Bible says that more than once. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, it says in Hebrews 11, verse 6. And now we have to be careful, congregation. We have to be careful. Christ, Christ does not teach here. The Bible does not teach, either here or anywhere else, that our works deserve or earn God's reward. Rather, it teaches, as the Catechism's answer to question 63 makes clear, this reward is not of merit. It's not earned. It's a reward of grace. In other words, God gives a reward, yes, but it's a reward our works don't deserve. You see, for one thing, congregation, our works, doing good works, is our duty. It's not that God owes us. It's that we owe God. You don't have to go far from Luke 18 to see this. If you have your Bibles open, turn back to Luke 17 with me for a moment. In verses 7 through 9, there in, in Luke 17, and Jesus, he, 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 the Lord tells his disciples to imagine having a servant or a slave who did everything for you. Now, my guess is there, there's some of us here who, who would like to imagine that and maybe more, more than imagine that. But people, many people had such servants in his day. And for us, especially after a, a long, hard day at home or at work or school, you've probably wished you had someone who could make supper and, and set and clear the table and, and, and do the dishes and, and put the kids to bed and, and so on. Well, the Lord says here, in essence, if you had a servant like that 
who, who, who would do everything for you, you wouldn't praise and thank him for his work and say, wow, I can't believe you did this. You, you wouldn't pull out, pull out a chair as he's made your supper for you and say, you know what, why don't you eat first? Why not? Because the work he's doing is what he's supposed to be doing. And then Jesus makes this point in verse 10. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. It is our duty to do good works. We owe them to God. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a dishwasher. And when it cleans your dishes, you don't say, wow, look at what my dishwasher did. It, it cleaned my dishes for me. What, what, what? How, can I, how can I reward that dishwasher? Of course you don't do that. Of course it cleaned your dishes. That's what it's supposed to do. It's the same way with us. When we do good works, when we do, when we do what God commands us to do, God doesn't look at our good works and say, wow, look at what they did for me. They did what I told them to do. I, I owe them a reward. No. We're supposed to do what he tells us to do. We're supposed to do good works. That's our duty. Congregation, don't we need that reminder? Even as Reformed Christians, it is so easy to think that somehow God needs us and that he owes us. He owes us for the service we give him. We serve him in the church, maybe as an office bearer or a Sunday school teacher or on a committee or some other way. And we think that because we do these things, he owes us blessings. We give a lot of money to church or we make confession of faith or we honor and obey our parents or, or we pray and then we think that he owes us good health. He owes us a long life. He owes us children, and he owes us children who don't cause us any stress. He owes us success in our business, in our careers, and our callings. He owes us good weather. He, he owes us the answer that we're praying for. It's so easy to think and live this way, and sometimes, beloved, we don't even realize it, especially when things are going well. It's not until he takes a blessing away sometimes that it comes out. Instead of saying, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, we say or we at least think, why, God? We were serving you. I've served you for years. I was planning on becoming a missionary, maybe. How, how could you do this? How could you let this happen? Do you hear it? God. You owe us because of all that I have done for you. No, beloved. It's never God who owes us. Never. It's always we who owe him. He doesn't need us. We need him even for our good works. Yes, God rewards those who do good, but not because he owes us. That's the point. Doing good works is our duty. To him. But not only that, our, our works are also really nothing compared to his reward. 
You think back again to Luke 18 and the reward that Jesus mentions to those who forsake everything and everyone else for the sake of the kingdom of God. He says they will receive, listen to this, not only much more in this present time, but also in the world to come, life everlasting. What a rich reward. We looked at everlasting life a few weeks ago. And maybe you remember talk, hearing about it. It's, it's the greatest blessing there is. It means, everlasting life means to have perfect, never-ending fellowship with the triune God and his people in the new creation where there will be no more suffering, no more sin. And Jesus says that's the reward of forsaking a few earthly blessings. The blessings of home and family for him. Not to mention the much more even in this life that he, he talks about. Congregation, the point is there's simply no comparison. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 18, the sufferings of this present time, and sufferings can be good works in that sense when we endure suffering with joy and patience. The sufferings of this present time, whatever they are, they may be difficult, they may be painful, they may even be excruciating, but Paul says they are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. God, God's reward, congregation, is, is not in any way proportionate to our works. God lavishes on us a reward our works don't deserve. It's all grace, you see. It's all grace. He rewards our works entirely out of his free and sovereign grace. He doesn't do it because he has to. He does it because he chooses to. He does it because he wants to. And he does it however he chooses. And it's not always the way we expect. In Matthew 20, Jesus tells the parable of a farmer. This farmer, he went out and he hired workers throughout the day. He, he began at 6 a.m. And he, he agreed with some, some people there for some money, a denarius for the day's work. And throughout the day, he kept going back and, and getting more laborers. Even until 5 p.m. when there was only one hour left of work. And... And so when the day was done and it was time to pay everyone, do you know what happened? The ones who worked all day, they were paid the money they had agreed on. But do you know how much the ones who worked only for the last hour were paid? The same amount as the ones who had worked all day. You know what the Lord's point was? It was this. His reward isn't based on our works. It's based on His grace. The point is, don't think, Christian. Don't think that just because you've done certain good things or because you've served God for so many years that you are somehow better than someone else. You're not. Don't think you deserve a better reward. You don't. He gives rewards, yes, but not because you're so good, but because he's so good. And what an encouragement that is, congregation. What a, an encouragement that should be to everyone then to come to Christ in faith because it means that you do not need to be afraid that it's too late, that it's too late for you to come to Christ and follow Him. You don't need to be here this afternoon and think that you're too old to come to Him or that you're, you're, you've wasted too much of your life serving yourself, that God won't receive you and bless you. No, Christ granted salvation to the thief on the cross and He can grant salvation to you. 
Come to him as you are. Don't try to do some good works first. They'll never be good enough. They'll never be good enough. They will not. They cannot count for your justification. Come to him. And God, believing the promise that God has given, that all who come to him in Christ, he will receive. And Christ himself has promised to receive all who come to him, not with their works, but in simple, humble trust in him. Maybe you say still, if that's true, then why bother with good works at all? Don't we need justification by works to keep people from sinning freely? In the words of question 64, does not this doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, make men careless and profane? That brings us to our third point, and it's this. God saves in a way that our works won't be missing. When you are saved, congregation, you will produce good works. We see that in the life of Zacchaeus. He was a publican, he was a tax collector. The same kind of person Jesus told about in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. He's even called a chief tax collector. He's a rich one. You can guess where he got that money from. How he got it. Children, you know what happened. Jesus came to Jericho. And Zacchaeus, he wanted to see him, but, but he couldn't because there was, there was a crowd. There was all these people in front of him. They were, they were blocking his view, and he was, he was really short. And so he, he came up with a plan. He, he figured out where Jesus was going, which, which road he was going to take, and he ran ahead, and he climbed up a tree, a sycamore tree. And, and when Jesus came to that tree, he, he looked up, and he saw him, and he, and he called him by name, and he, and he said... Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at your house. And Zacchaeus did. He received him joyfully. But then there were people, they they were murmuring, they were complaining, saying that Jesus had gone to be a guest with a man who was a sinner. Uh, Then you know what Zacchaeus did, right? You know what he did. He stood up. In verse 8 it says, And he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, a half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have anything, taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold, four times as much. And then Jesus, he said to him, this day salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. What does that tell us, congregation? It tells us that when God saves a sinner, he saves in a way that good works won't be missing. They don't count for our justification, for our righteousness before God, but they do follow our justification. They do follow our faith. They must. Faith without works is dead, James says. Good works must follow our faith. Yes, we are justified. We are declared righteous by faith alone before God. But faith never remains alone. Because, why? Because faith unites us to Christ, you see. And when we're in Christ, when we've been united to him by faith, then fruit follows. He that abides in me, Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. That's why, answer 64, the catechism says, it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. You see, that's exactly what happened with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully. 
He was united to him by faith. That's why Christ calls him a son of Abraham. Because he had faith in Christ, just like Abraham had faith in the promised Christ. And fruit followed. Fruit followed, giving half of his wealth to the poor. And whatever he had ripped off of other people, he gave back four times as much. His union with Christ produced fruits of thankfulness. And the same must be true of every Christian. The fruit may not look exactly the same as it did with Zacchaeus, but there must be fruit. There must be works. There must be love for God and others. When you are truly justified by faith alone, your response is not, hey, I can keep living the way I used to. I can just sin as much as I want. It's not either I can hold on to a few sins. No, when you are truly justified, declared righteous by faith in Christ, your response is, how can I ever thank God enough for the amazing gift of His righteousness in Christ for me? It's not, what can I do now? What can I get away with? That's not the response when you're truly justified. When you're truly justified, your response is, Lord, what would you have me to do? Do you confess to be a Christian? And there must be a love for and a desire after and a striving to obey the whole law of God. And there must be prayer. There must be fruits of thankfulness in your life, is there? Oh, it may be small at first. It may not be strong. It may be weak. Maybe you can hardly see it and you look in your life, but is it there? Is it there or what reason to thank God when there is? That's not your work ultimately. It's the work of God in you. Our works follow from our faith and they are the evidence of our faith. You know, when Jesus said that today salvation has come to the house of Zacchaeus, in, in verse, verse 9, this day is salvation come to this house. He didn't, he's not pronouncing salvation on him because of his standing up and, and doing those things. It's because the works, the works the, 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 what he was going to do was evidence of his faith. And that's why there are so many places in the Bible that say that all people, even believers, will be judged on the day of judgment according to their works. Revelation 20 is just one place. I'm not going to point you to it now, but sometimes those passages, congregation, can, can scare believers because we know, we know our works are so imperfect and they can feel to us to be so feeble and so few and far between. But you see, congregation, God won't be looking for perfect works. He's not going to suddenly change his mind and sit on the last day and say that, well, now we're justified by our works rather than by faith alone. No, the point is that our good works as Christians, as feeble and as imperfect and as stained with sin as they are, they will point to the genuineness of our faith in Christ. They will show that our names are really written in the book of life, that we have been saved all by the grace of God. And then the Lord will welcome us into his presence. Not because our works justify us, even in the least. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, to whom we've been united by faith.
and because of whom we've borne fruit to his praise. Well, congregation, what is the purpose in all this? Isn't it just this? That we might not rely on ourselves at all for our righteousness before God. But that we might, like the publican, like the tax collector, cast ourselves on the mercy of God and put our faith in the one sacrifice for sin, the only sacrifice that satisfies the justice of God, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that we put our faith in him and that we receive him like Zacchaeus and rest upon him alone for all of our salvation. That's, that's the purpose. There's no other way, you see, to be justified, to be righteous before God, but through Christ and his sacrifice. Are you trusting in him? He welcomes you. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the clear teaching of your word that shows us the uselessness, the futility of relying upon anything in ourselves and that calls us to put our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Thank you that we may be here this afternoon, that we may speak this word, that we may hear this word. Help us, O Lord, not to keep it to ourselves. And help us to live in a way that shows we truly believe it. And we don't despise others. We don't trust in ourselves. But we trust in Christ. And we point others to him, the great Savior, the all-sufficient Savior of sinners. In his name we pray. Amen.